0: And then we'll spend some time uh, in the word this morning. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and, and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. As we think about and contemplate our response to your grace and our appropriate response to you and to your word. We ask that your spirit would be moving in our hearts, causing us to see your truth from your word. Help us not skew our thinking about this subject of your son and our response by tradition or any other man-made philosophy, but that the word would be our, our, gui- our guiding light uh, in, in a world that is so very, very dark. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, in verse 1, we learn a couple things. First, we learn that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So, sorry for everyone who has nativity scenes up and has the wise men on the nativity scene. Uh, It's wrong. Jesus is born right? Jesus is born, uh, we we get a little time indicator here of of the time of Jesus' birth. Notice it says it was in the days of Herod the King. This would be Herod the Great. We know Herod the Great died somewhere around 4 BC, right? So this would put the birth of Jesus at anywhere from 6 to 4 BC. Really doesn't matter, but that's just kind of the time frame of when it would have happened, right? And then it says Magi, from the east, arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, magi is kind of an interesting word. It's really, we use the word wise men. Magi, it's basically somebody who believed in astrology. They looked at the stars. They read the stars. And from the alignment of the stars, they said, okay, this is what the gods are saying. And so they're trying to predict the future and, and, and determine which way you should go by the arrangement of the stars. So that's, that's who these guys are. They're from the east. I'll be honest with you, if you want to make a lot of money, just come up with a theory of what land from the east the wise men came from, the magi came from, and I'm sure a lot of Christians would buy it up. We don't really know. I mean, we have an idea, probably from the area of Persia, but we don't really know. All we know is they're from the east, and quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what country they're from, right? And so they arrive in Jerusalem, and notice what they say. They say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Now, this would have been uh, this would have been fun to be in Jerusalem, uh, and to have a whole bunch of these guys who read the stars and talk about the future, and and maybe they had the Old Testament, maybe they were familiar with the idea that there was going to be a king of Israel born in Jerusalem, and this one was going to be this great uh, this great Messiah, and so they saw this star and they they put two and two together. We we don't. No, it's not really important. But they do come saying, where's king of the Jews? And uh, imagine you're part of the ruling class looking around going, "Uh, did anybody give birth to a kid lately? That's not a fun thing to say, right? I mean, that would cause great distress, right? Where's the king of the Jews? And the reason that they say, where's the king of the Jews? They said, for we saw his star in the east, once again, a lot of people have lots of different theories. My intention this morning is not to share with you every single theory of what this could be. I think this is just a supernatural star that these men saw and were led by the Holy Spirit to put together that there is a supernatural event happening in Jerusalem. right? And then they say this phrase, and have come to worship him. Now, that may be the most interesting part At least to me, in this whole story up to this point, right? It's interesting that there's magi. They're interesting that they're coming to Jerusalem. The star—that's interesting. Uh, But they say we want to. We've come to worship him. Now we're going to dive into this word "worship" here uh, a lot, but just. For right now, just so that we understand, the, the word here, the Greek word here for worship is proskuneo. Proskuneo. The ba- the basic meaning of the word means to to kiss before. Right, pros is before, and kuneo means to, to kiss. And so it has the idea of like kissing the ground before someone. It, it it spoke of someone who, in a secular sense, it would be of a king. You would do that to a king, like you would bow before a king as he's walking by. You would pay him homage. However, in the New Testament, when Matthew uses it in this sense, by the way, those lights are not the star that just came on. Just wanted to let everybody know. That just really shocked me that they came on. Um, (laughs) Where was I? Thank you. Proskuneo does have a secular meaning of doing homage of what you would do to a king. However, it's predominantly a theological word. And the idea of, of them saying, I want to come and worship, and I don't want to try to put words in their mouth, but I don't want to diminish the fact that he uses the word, but I truly believe that these men think that there's something very supernatural happening and that they're going to bow down to this one who they think is the king and there's some supernatural element. We've come to worship him. It's an incredible statement, an incredible statement, incredible statement. And as I was thinking about Christmas and why we celebrate this time, we celebrate it because of Jesus, but not just because there was some kid born in Israel some 2,000 years ago, and we just don't have enough parties to attend. So we thought we'll throw a birthday party for some kid born in Israel. That's not why we celebrate this time. That's not why we take time each year to celebrate this. We celebrate this because of who Jesus is. He's the God-man. We celebrate this because we're celebrating him and we're worshiping him. So for the next month, we're going to talk about worshiping Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. It is about the worship of Jesus Christ. It's my hope that by the end of the month, we will echo the same thoughts with a deeper understanding, a a more intelligent understanding, but we will still echo the thoughts, we have come to worship him. So, this is what we're going to be doing for the next month or so. We're going to be talking about worship. And in the next month, I want to try to ask and answer five questions. That's what we're going to try to do. The first question we're going to try to answer is, what is worship? What's its definition? What does that mean? The second question I want to ask is, who should worship? Who should worship? The third question is, when do we worship? The fourth question I want to answer is, why do we worship Him? Why do we worship Jesus? And lastly, how do we worship? Those are the questions we're going to try to answer in the next month. And so this morning we're going to discuss what is worship. We're going to try to define this word worship that we use. Now, before we start this definition, I'm going to give off a couple cautions here and say this is probably far more difficult than you may think to define a word such as worship. And there's some difficulties to our definition of worship. And let me just name a couple of these difficulties. The first difficulty in in us defining worship is not that the Bible is confusing on what it means to worship. The confusion comes that we've been to church. We've gone places where we've done a thing that we called worship. It could have been right. It could have been wrong. But we did it. And then when we think about worship, we can't divorce the fact of what we're doing now from the experience that we had last week Two weeks ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, right? We've done this thing. And so when we read the word worship into the Bible, it's really hard for us to divorce what the Bible means from what we've experienced. Let me just give you a quick example here. I don't want to belabor it, but when I was a kid, I went, my dad was the pastor of East Nantmill Baptist Church in Elverson, Pennsylvania. The church was around since the Second Great Awakening, It used to be called Crow's Hill Baptist Church. Praise the Lord, they changed it to Nant Mill, which I don't know what a Nant Mill is anyways. But every time we would have the Lord's Supper, it was always on the first Sunday of the month, all the old men would hold all the elements, they would stand up front, and we would all sing together the first verse of the church's one foundation. And then we would take the Lord's Supper together. Then I went to another church, and we sang the church's one foundation, and we didn't do the Lord's Supper. Blew my mind. Then we did the Lord's Supper without singing the church's one foundation. Little Caleb looked for the exit, thinking God is about ready to rain down hellfire upon this church for not worshiping the way you're supposed to. You're always supposed to sing the church's one foundation before you eat Jesus' special bread, right? You get the point, though, right? I'm I'm being quite humorous, but you get the point. It's easy for us to experience something and then bring that in. Here's another challenge that I have in, in defining worship is I have friends that go to other churches. They have a concept of worship that might not be, it might be biblical, it might not be, but they talk about worship, and they could mean something different. And whether I like it or not, that influences what I think worship is, right? I have plenty of friends who, when they talk about worship, they have a significantly different understanding about worship than I do. For them, it's song time or sappy feeling time or let's create an atmosphere time, right? Or sit down and listen to the pastor time, right? They have a concept of worship that is far different from mine. And whether we like it or not, that's part of the vocabulary that we have to deal with. That's a challenge. Here's another challenge I have: the Bible wasn't written in English. This this blew my mind when I was a young kid and I was doing a study on worship, and I found out that there, in the original language, there's multiple words that are used to, that we use, and it's translated in one English word: worship. Blew my mind, right? You see, worship all throughout the Bible. But what I understood as worship was significantly different from the original meanings of the words that are found in the Bible. Not to mention the fact that because it's so frequently used, sometimes a word that's used in the Bible over and over again, because it's such a big study and you have to study the entire book, we just kind of go, okay, I'll get a basic answer and kind of just fill in the gaps as I go. And so sometimes we're not really uh, thinking about what is worship. We just go, okay, that's the word worship. I fill in my answer, fill in some of my experiences. Okay, we move on. Here's another issue that I find in, in answering this question is this, is theology. You understand that theology has a huge part in worship. Huge. Huge. Just think of it. Let's say that two people walk into a church. One person, I think, incorrectly believes that a person can lose their salvation if they sin enough. I don't think the Bible bears it out. Then imagine one of us walks in who does believe that once you are saved, you are kept by the power of God and that God keeps you eternally secure because salvation is by him. You walk into the same service, you sing the same words, But when he's talking about the grace of God, and when you're talking about the grace of God, when he says, thank you for being so gracious and forgiving, and you say, thank you for being gracious and forgiving, those are two different thank yous. When they act a certain way, it's because they believe that they could possibly lose their salvation, so their actions are predicated on that theological disposition. And you understand that there are certain things that we do because of our theological disposition. Theology plays a huge, huge part in how we worship. There's one other doctrinal thing that I think is really important in this, and I don't want to get too lost here, but I think it's really important. We at this church hold to this idea that the church is not Israel. We believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God made promises to the Jews, the ethnic Jew, he keeps those promises, he's going to keep those promises. There's this period of time that's now known as the church age where he's dealing with us. We don't absorb all of those promises that he made to Israel. Those are still kept, and he's going to keep those. And he, and, but we're grafted in. So there's a separation between the church and the ethnic Jew, and God will fulfill that. That thought alone causes us to think about worship in a very specific way. We are very New Testament-driven when we think about worship because I go why do I need to go back to the Old Testament and deal with the Old Testament if I have Jesus and he's dealing with the world now differently than he did back then I could go back to the Old Testament and look for principles I can learn but as far as how I think about how I pattern worship services or how we think about worship no I'm not your priests no there's no holidays there's no liturgical calendars This place is a building that we consider sacred because of what we do in here. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. That changes. There are those who believe that the church replaces Israel. And guess what? When they start thinking about worship, guess what they do? They go back into the Old Testament and say, okay, well, here's a temple. The church now is the temple. And they start to allegorize all of those Old Testament rituals and try to make it so that Christians today can do those things. That happens a lot. There's a lot of things that happen in the church today around the world that the basis of why they do what they do is based off the Old Testament. That makes it, that makes it really complicated. I imagine, I imagine one other thing that makes this really complicated is that we're all sinners. Think of this. There's a sense of there's oughtness. This is what worship ought to look like. And there are things that are anti-worship. We'll call that sin. And guess what we do a lot? Anti-worship. So we could huff and puff and talk about how unbiblical someone else is because they have a fog machine on the stage. But guess what? I sin as well. And I do a lot of things that are anti-worship. But then think about this. I have the flesh. And the flesh wants a whole bunch of stuff. And then there's the spirit. And it wants a whole bunch of stuff. And it fights. It fights. So when it comes time for my private worship or even corporate worship, guess guess what happens? That fight is still there. That worship war is still there. And it's possible for us to be fleshly and to organize things in a fleshly manner. That is possible. That's a struggle. So I say all of this to say that as we start looking at some of these words that we use, that, that that God uses to define worship... I don't want you to sit here and start doing what about-ism, right? Where you go, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but what about? No, no. I want us to look at what God has to say about worship, define the Bible according to worship, or according to the word, and that then becomes what we should do, okay? That, that's, that's the goal. I, I, I really don't care what other Christians are doing around the world right now. I don't have to answer to Christians around the world. I have to answer to the Lord about my life, and I think he clearly outlines for us what he requires, and I think he clearly defines what we should do, and this thing is called worship. So, with that in mind, let's kind of look over some of these words. Just because we're going to be using this word a lot, I want to start with the English word, because I think this is important, just in our thinking, and then we'll go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, looking at some of these words and some of these concepts. I think I found it incredibly strange that the English word worship was not originally a theological word. It didn't start off theological. In fact, it didn't even start off as a verb. It started off as a title. If you, uh, if you listen to any old movies where they're talking old English, you'll hear them say to a king or somebody who's really important, your worship. Now, that might sound strange to our ear because worship is a verb. Right, I worship, but to call somebody a worship, well, that's strange. Basically, what it meant was you are worthy of respect. You're more worthy of respect than I am. That's really what the idea is. You're worthy of respect. And often what would happen with the idea of worship would come, okay, this person is worthy of respect, and one of the ways that I visibly show that respect to the worship, to the person of worship, that I'm calling worship, is by a bow or by a curtsy. And determining on how much you consider them worthy depended on how many times you bowed and how lowly you bowed. So the word starts off as a title of speaking of somebody who's worthy of respect that I say, you are more worthy than I am. And there's this action of debasement, of saying, I'm submitting to you. This word, as the translators of the first English Bibles, as they were looking for a verb to describe this action of of saying, "You, You are more worthy than I am. Speaking of God, you're more worthy, and I'm bowing low as a demonstration that I am now submitting myself to you. They took this title and turned it into a verb of where it's ascribing, it's saying to God, You are worthy. You are it. And theologically, we would say God alone is worthy of this level of respect. It's a, it's a symbol of debasement, it's a symbol of humility, of repentance, of loyalty. And I think that this is a really good word when we start thinking about some of these. So, in the Hebrew, there are a couple words. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time in the New Testament. But there's just two words I want you to make uh, just make note of in your notes, uh, and and you're going to find that there's a lot of equivalency between the Old Testament words and the Hebrew words and the New Testament words. The first word that's used in the Hebrew that, that that's translated worship is the word shachah shachah. This is this is what it means. Get down. Get down. Bow. Bow low. It's used numerous times in the book of Genesis. So for example, there's a time where, where uh, Abraham went out and he saw the three strangers and says he bowed down. He shakha. He, he bowed low. He got low. He got really low. And this word then means to submit, and it's an action and an attitude that says, you are far worthy of respect. You are far more worthy of respect than I am. I don't see myself as being worthy you shouldn't bow to me. I bow to you. You are so much, you have such a higher rank than I. You are more worthy to receive my life. And so I'm bowing in submission. There's another word that's used, and it's uh, it's the word abed, abed, and it, it basically means I serve you. This is used numerous times in the book of Leviticus, which is interesting, isn't it? That shakha, isn't necessarily used so much in the book of Leviticus. It's used, but the main one is this other one, and this other one means I serve you. So basically, it's this idea of God gives specific sacrifices, specific people, specific places, specific rituals, and these things are supposed to be done the way that God asks them to do them. And if you do them, you are serving him. You are doing a work that God thinks is good. You're doing good works. That's essentially the concept. It's, I'm serving. I'm serving you. I'm doing what you say. And God, in the Old Testament, took this incredibly serious. He still takes it serious, but in the Old Testament, there's a lot of visible examples of how serious he takes this worship. Remember the story of of Aaron's two sons who went in, and it says, and they offered strange fire found in the book of Exodus, It doesn't matter what they offered. Just as long as you know they didn't offer the right thing. And that's the point. God specifically said, you must do this. And these people did not have a bed. They didn't serve him. They didn't see themselves as having to submit to him. They said, I can offer him whatever I want. God doesn't care if I offer him a different type of incense. Guess what happened? God struck him dead. He cared. He really cared. They they did not worship him. They didn't treat him with respect. They didn't serve him. They didn't say to him, what do you want from my life? That's what I'm going to do. Now, the reason that I want to spend most of the time in the New Testament is this. The Old Testament is always centered on... The law, it, 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 it's devoid of Christ, and you have to go to the New Testament to find Christ. And I think that the concept of these words that are used in Hebrew help our understanding of worship, that this is the kind of worship. But we're New Testament people. We have Christ. We need to stay with the New Testament. Jesus is the one we worship. We worship based off the gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that other stuff in the Old Testament. I find that those people who go back to the Old Testament to try to pattern the way that we worship now put such an emphasis on that and you find that they have a really poor understanding of grace, a really poor understanding of the gospel. Now, granted, they are willing to submit and do crazy things, but the point of worship is to honor Jesus Christ and we are Christians who are living in the church age and we are living in a time where there is a lot of things that God asks of us that is more than what he asked of the people back under the law so for example they had one day that they were to keep holy the Sabbath essentially how many days do you think the Christians should keep holy all of them they had certain food that they were allowed to eat and give thanks for. Guess how much food we get to give thanks for? All of it. They had certain priests that could go before to go and do all these services of sacrifice. Guess who gets to do that in the church? You do. You're a priest to God. You can go right to the throne room of God. That you have far greater access. That There's something far greater in the New Testament that isn't a reality in the Old Testament. So that's why I want to focus on the New Testament. And the first word that I want to think of, I want you to think of, is found in the book of Revelation. Go with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter four. Here's the scene. The scene's in heaven. Uh, the The Lamb is coming down, and you have these these twenty four elders, and they're they're sitting there, and they're 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 looking at Jesus. And notice their response in verse ten of Revelation four ten, and says, "And the twenty four elders will fall down." Now, now this word for fall down means to fall down on the ground. All right, that's what it means. Okay? That's not the word for worship, but that's an important thing to remember. They fall down. They go to the ground. Do they go to the ground face up? No. They go to the ground face down. That's an important important distinction here. So they, so so notice what they do. They will fall down before him who sits on the throne and then it says and will and here's the word proskuneo him who lives forever and ever. So there's this word they fall down on their face and then there's this word which is proskuneo which remember from earlier in the sermon means to kiss the ground before so this is the idea that they are falling on their face on the ground kissing the ground that's the symbol it's interesting symbol kissing the ground kissing the ground in cultures where you do that type of thing This is what it means. It means I love you, I adore you, but I am not worthy to touch you, to show you this affection. I want to kiss you because I love you, but I can't. That's inappropriate. You're far too worthy for me to even touch you. So you know what I'm going to do? The only thing that I'm worthy to do is I'm worthy to kiss the ground that you're stepping on or you're about ready to step on. So I want to show you my affection, but I can't touch you because I'm not worthy to touch you. I'm not worthy enough to approach you. But I want to still show that affection, and I'm kissing the ground that you might step on. Because that's the type of affection I have. I'm unworthy. You are incredibly worthy. Now think of this attitude when it comes to worship. Worship is first and foremost this attitude of God is worthy of the utmost respect. We are not. God is worthy of utmost respect. We are not. Our worship should not consider ourselves and our preferences. That is not what worship is. Worship does not go, what do I think should happen? Nope, wrong. It is this attitude of I am unworthy. But you have been gracious to me and I love you, but I am still unworthy. I am not worthy to look at you. I'm not worthy to come up and grab you and touch you. There's this feeling of self-debasement, of humility, of submission. You are worthy. I'm not. It's an incredible attitude. Now, obviously, there's more to worship in the New Testament. We know that God is our heavenly father and we have this close relationship. But do not think that just because he is my father that that means that I can be casual with him. Worship is not a casual endeavor. It happens in times where we are casual, but it's not casual. It is a very high view of God, of seeing God for who he is and all of his attributes and realizing who I am in light of who he is. That's the first word that's used, proskuneo. Very much like the Old Testament uh, verb that's used to to bow down. There's another one, which is latria. Go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12, just notice verse 1 really important verse here. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your, and then here is the literal translation, the logical service. Now, the New American Standard here puts it as your spiritual service of worship. I love that. That's a great way of phrasing that. Literally, it's your logical service of worship. So, To me, here's what Paul's saying, because it's very clear. My worship is a response to God's mercy. Right? That's it. Worship is a response. I'm responding to the fact that he loved me. I'm responding to the fact that he redeemed me. That he's entered into this loving, everlasting covenant with me. That I have this eternal security. My worship is based off of that work. I cannot devoid my service to him and my worship to him from what he's done to me. I've been redeemed. That's his mercy. And the logical conclusion, the, the worshipful logical conclusion is what? that Not that I'm offering up sacrifices of animals, which are dead sacrifices. I am offering up my life as a continual sacrifice. Now, that's an incredible statement. I know what it. We kind of get the idea of what does it mean to come and bring a cow, and the cow gets killed, and then it's done, right? This idea of a continual sacrifice is that I'm coming to you, and you have the rest. You have it all. That's what it is. You get it all. That's it. Every moment, it's yours. Every attitude, it's yours. Every word is yours. Every thought is yours. Every action is yours. Everything from this point out, it's yours. It's for you. This is the service. All of it's for you. That's incredible. And notice how he qualifies this. It's living, which means it's, it's not a one-time action. It's continual action. It's holy, meaning that it's set apart. It's set apart specifically for God And it's acceptable to him, meaning that it looks at the truth of God's word, and it says, God, what kind of worship do you want? And then that's what I give him. It is heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see many people, when they think of worship, they think of it as this opportunity for me to creatively express what I'm feeling. Now, I'm all for creative expression. I'm a musician. I love creative expression. I love it when people write songs and do paintings. I love that stuff. But when it comes to worshiping the sovereign God, he has outlined for us very clearly the type of attitudes, the type of actions, and the type of things that he wants to see. I don't have the right as a creature to say to the creator, I think you're wrong because you don't understand what's going on in the year 2021. I don't think you I don't think you quite get it, God, because you don't know the people in my community. So I think we're going to do this. You realize we don't have the right to change it. Right? We don't we don't get the right. We don't get the right to define it the way we want to. He's already defined it, and we have to do it. That's it. Right? It's acceptable to him. And this is our this is our service. This is our worship. It's this idea of doing good deeds. The Bible outlines it. Now, obviously, you're going, well, Caleb, aren't you confusing private worship here with, with public worship? No, because in my mind, when I go out and I leave these doors, every moment that I'm walking is an opportunity for me to worship and ascribe worth to God. And when I'm obedient to the New Testament, walking by the power of the Spirit, that's worship. When I am here in this room and we are edifying one another, challenging one another, growing in the word, listening to the theological singers sing songs, teaching us theological truths from songs, as we pray and as we our eyes together are focused on the Lord, is that not doing the same exact thing of saying to God, you are worthy? Worship is all the time, but I don't want to get in my head of myself because that's another question and we're going to solve that on another day. There's one other place that Latrua is used, and I'm sorry if, if I'm going to go over. If you have a roast in the oven and you need to go or you need to go to Glen Eden without us, you're more than welcome to. Hint, hint. No, I'm joking. Um, go with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. This word Latrua is used. I, I just think this is so important for us that, that, that I, I want you to see it. Philippians 3.3 3, as, as Paul is telling the Philippians beware of false teachers he shows that there's a difference between false teachers and true true believers and in verse 3 he says for we are the true circumcision those other guys think they are the circumcision because that's what they teach but they're wrong and then it says who Latrua who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, isn't that interesting? These other people think that they're doing works that God would approve of. Thus, they're worshiping him. But they're not. We do that. And notice, what's the type of work that God wants for us, New Testament church? It's one that is inspired and comes and finds its root in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit you see the difference? You see why, you see why there's so much emphasis put on the New Testament for us as Christians because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and we live and we're, we, we live by the power of the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. We're now living by the guidelines and the principle and the leading of the Spirit of God. and when we, coincide, when we walk with the Spirit, we're doing the type of worship that God wants. There's two other words that are used. They're not used very often, but they are interesting. They're very similar. They have the same root. One of them is used in the book of Acts uh, four times that I can find in the book of Acts that I think are notable. It's the word sebomai, and this word is the sense of commitment, but it's much more than just saying, yeah, I'm committed. It's this heart's disposition that says, I am in, regardless, I'm in. This word is used in, in describing Lydia. It's described in, in, in talking about several of the believers as Luke is looking for words to describe their dedication to the Lord. He describes them as incredibly devoted, committed people. That's the word he uses. has this idea of, of love and adoration and saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do, and I'll go through any situation that you want me to go through. And I'm not leaving. I'm here. This is it. This is it. I'm choosing to follow you wherever that leads. There's no other option. There is no, I'm choosing you unless it is what you want me to do and where you want me to go. That's where I'm going. And I'm choosing you and I'm sticking with it. Sense of fidelity. There's another one which is, uh, you say, Ebeo. Which means I respect you. This is this is found in. It's only used one time positively in First Timothy chapter five verse four, speaking of widows who are characterized by godliness and reverence and piety. And so the the word really means I respect you. And it and it's a it's much more than just a yeah I respect you, so I'll do whatever you want because you're the you're the boss. It is this profound sense of awe and reverence that says I want to respect you and I will do whatever. So, as you can see, there's a lot of words and in trying to give a workable definition of worship could take four pages right? And that would be very difficult to remember and as I was thinking about all of these, I thought For a working definition, now, granted, realize that there's a lot to this definition, and there's a lot implied in this definition, but I still think it's a pretty good definition because I came up with it. Worship is your appropriate response of love to God. That's what worship is. It's your appropriate response of love to God. When I say appropriate, it automatically implies, at least in my mind, that God took the first action. It's a response, right? That's a response to what he's done. It's a response to who he is. It's appropriate, meaning that he's already outlined what you're supposed to do and what you're not allowed to do. He set the rules. you got to make sure you know what those rules are. He set the attitudes that you're supposed to have. It has to be appropriate. It's an appropriate response, right? It, 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 imp- it implies that that it's it. it It's an appropriate response because it's the response that God has given. Thus, it requires the Holy Spirit and the gospel and one to be a believer. It's of love, meaning I'm not just worshiping some concept. I'm worshiping a person. When when I describe praise and thankfulness to God, that's a person. And my worship should be loving the person of the triune Godhead. Regardless of what he does for me or what he doesn't do for me. I love him. And my responses should be from that sense of, I love you. This is my dedication to you. I adore you. I'm devoted to you. I love you for who you are. Of course, I love you for what you've done for me. I'm thankful for what you've done for me. But I think often we forget, even in churches like ours, that God is not a concept. He's not pages of a doctrinal statement. He's a person, and we love the person. And notice the object is the triune God. Worship is an appropriate response of my life, of love towards God. I love him. I want him to be honored. I want him to be glorified. He is the object. So if I have a response that's inappropriate, whether it's in my private life or here, it's not worship. It's anti-worship. If I'm doing something that's not a response of the gospel or his grace, it's not worship. It's anti-worship. If I have any other motivation for doing what I'm doing other than for love for God, it's anti-worship. And if there's any other object that's receiving that response that's due to God, it is idolatry. Now, in the following weeks, we're going to continue to flesh this out. So obviously, we're going to talk about how to worship and who worships and when we worship. This morning, all I wanted to do was just think of a definition but knowing the definition, I think, is helpful for what the advice would be for you for the rest of your life, but just thinking for the rest of the week. Go out and worship. Worship publicly and worship passionately. As Christians, this is what we do. We worship. This should be the thing that describes us the most. It, we should, we should live a life of worship. So, go out and worship. Worship isn't, though it may include singing songs, worship isn't some of the things that we think that it is, though it may include it. Worship is, in every circumstance, every second coming up, it's the appropriate response of love to God. That's worship. May we go out and worship. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. We thank you that you call us, you beckon us, and we thank you that we have the opportunity to adore you and know you and love you. Apart from your work of love towards us, we could not do such a thing. So we're very thankful for that. We ask, Father, that you will help us because we are terrible at this. There are numerous times that we are not appropriate and we're not acting out of love and our object is not you. Will you help us worship you? Work on our hearts so that our beating passion and desire is your honor and your glory. And help us not get distracted, confused, not be convoluted by the other bad definitions of worship. And may our hearts and our minds be focused on what your word has to say for us. We thank you and love you. And it's in your son's name that we say amen.